Blog Talk Radio. The Four Persons, Inc. is a federally registered and licensed 501c3 charity. Any use of any of our content without our permission is prohibited by law. Our purpose is evangelization, education, and social action. Please go to our website at thefourpersons.com or our blog site at thefourpersons.net to make your tax-deductible donation by credit or debit card. You can also send a check to The Four Persons, Inc., P.O. Box 11214, Manassas, Virginia, 20113. To contact us, send us an email at email at thefourpersons.com. Welcome to the Catholic Ken Apologetics Show on the Four Persons Network. This is our weekly Friday morning show with Catholic apologist Ken Litchfield. To call into the show today, the number is 515-602-9655. That number again is 515-602-9655. And now, let's welcome our host Ken Litchfield. Good morning, Blog Talk Radio Show fans. This is the Catholic Ken Apologetic Show with me, your host, Ken Litchfield. We have a great show planned for you today. We will be discussing the rosary. If you have any questions on this topic, feel free to call in at 515-602-9655. If you'd like a copy of today's show notes, you can send me an email at catholicken at thefourpersons.com. That's Catholic with a K, and at the number four persons.com. I'm also available to come speak at your parish on this or many other topics. You can contact me at KenLitchfield61 at gmail.com or look me up on Facebook. So let's get into today's topic of the rosary. The month of October is the month that we highlight the rosary because of the Battle of Lepanto and its relationship to the rosary. For those of you who are not familiar with the Battle of Lepanto, here's some history on that. Christian sailors joined Pope Pius V in praying the Most Holy Rosary and defeated a much larger Turkish force at the Battle of Lepanto in 1571. The battle was a turning point in rebelling the Turkish, Turkish invasions of Europe. To remember the battle, Our Lady's Intercession, the Feast of Our Lady of the Rosary, originally called Our Lady of Victory, was established on October 7th. Over the centuries, profits from trade made Venice a center of art and culture, but with the fall of Constantinople in 1453, Christians no longer dominated the valuable Mediterranean trade routes to the east. Four generations of Venetian merchants tried to maintain neutral relationships with both the Christian and Muslim forces. 
but they grew frightened when a strategic port of Rhodes fell to the Turks in 1522. Fifty years later, when the Turks demanded the surrender of Cyprus, the Venetians appealed to Pope Pius V, who assembled a multinational naval expedition that engaged the Turks at Lepanto, near the Bay of Corinth, on October 5, 1571. I'm sorry, October 7th, 1571. Christians, the Christians were greatly outnumbered in this encounter. They commanded only 214 boats and 80,000 troops. The Turkish force totaled 120,000 troops, about 225 galleys, and an additional de smaller boats. The battle occurred at a time of transition in naval warfare and Lepanto stands as the last great naval engagement in ships powered by oars. Every school child knows how the battle ended. The weather, which favored the Turks at dawn, changed, and Christian forces were able to overcome their enemy. 9,000 Christians died in the battle, but 12,000 were released from slavery in Turkish galleys. Turkish losses were far greater. Even by modern standards, these are amazing statistics for a single battle fought on a single day. Pope Pius V was a Dominican friar and prayed the rosary throughout the battle and attributed the victory to the intercession of the Blessed Virgin Mary. Hence, the Feast of Our Lady of of the Rosary, which was originally called the Feast of Our Lady of Victory, on October 7th. Naturally, the feast is dear to Dominicans and their friends, but were not the only prayers addressed that day to the Mother of God. The Christian troops are said to have prayed the Rosary throughout the night before the battle, and some sources say the rhythmic repetition of the prayer thoroughly frightened and demoralized the Turkish host. Modern sensibility may question the propriety of finding God's hand in such a bloody undertaking, and for no better reason than to protect commercial interests. But those who fought at Lepanto had no doubt that God accomplished remarkable results from these less-than-promising beginnings. The church does the same thing, taking the anniversary of a bloody victory and transforming it, not by concentrating on the battle, but by focusing on the prayers that won the battle. These prayers continue to take the fallen stuff of our lives and transform it into something noble and fine. In the rosary, we have the opportunity to contemplate all the human events we are familiar with, birth, death, friendship, deceit, joy, sorrow, defeat, and triumph, and to sanctify them by identifying our experience of these events with the experience of the same events in the lives of our Savior and his mother. While many Protestants claim the devotion that the devotion to and veneration of Our Lady is a novelty developed by Papists in the Middle Ages, Nothing can be further from the truth. An ancient prayer to the Blessed Virgin Mary, the sub-tomb presidium, 
is the oldest known prayer to Our Lady, asking for her intercession. It is even older than the Hail Mary itself. The hymn has long been chanted in both the Western and Eastern churches, but the antiquity of this prayer is attested to in discoveries of a third century Egyptian papyrus. Like we written during the persecution of Valerian or Decius, the prayer shows the early church in grave danger, confidently asking for the protection of the Virgin Mary. The oldest known copy was published in 1938 by C.H. Roberts. His colleague E. Lobel dated the fragment to the third century, likely between the years 250 and 280. One significant element is that it shows early Christians using the term Theotokos, or Mother of God, centuries before the Council of Ephesus in 431. It also shows that despite the claims of many Protestants, Christians were directly praying to Mary for her intercession and protection. The theme of the prayer is, Under your patronage, we take refuge, Holy Mother of God. This is an English translation. Under your patronage, we take refuge, Holy Mother of God. Our petitions do not despise in necessities. But of all, dangers deliver us always, glorious virgin and blessed. So you can see here from the very early on in Christianity, when the Christians were in distress, not only did they pray to God, they also prayed for Mary's intercession. Tradition is very old in the Catholic Church and not something that we need to be afraid of. Now, the Hail Mary does come to us from mostly from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 1. Many early many linguists proposed that the original language of this writing was in Aramaic, because most likely Jesus and Mary spoke Aramaic. That was the common language that the Jews spoke at the time of Christ. It is then back translated from the original Greek of Luke's writing into Aramaic, it has a poetic meter used to aid in memorization. We always have to remember that what was what is written in the New Testament was written after the time of Jesus. Uh, there wasn't a bunch of the gospel writers and the New Testament writers weren't following around Jesus and writing down everything he said. Everything in the New Testament was written down 10, 20, 30, 40, and 50, and maybe even 60 years after Jesus ascended into heaven. Now, that's not to say that you know it's unreliable, because at that time in uh, culture, people, not that many people could read, but they knew the stories because they had been repeated so often. And that's how information was passed on, was through repeated stories. In our modern times, we might be thinking that, you know, if it's not written on paper in a book or on the internet, you know, it's not really true. 
of course, the Internet, anybody can write something and post it on the Internet, and it doesn't necessarily make it true. But people often think that the only valid way to pass on information is through writing. But that was not the case at the time of Jesus. So that's why it was originally written in Aramaic, well, passed on in Aramaic with a poetic meter, which which helps people remember the story. The original Greek from Luke for Hail Mary is Kerikotomene. Jerome translated it into Latin as Ave Gratia Plena, which means Hail, full of grace. As early as 1030 AD, the greeting of Elizabeth was added to the greeting of the angel Gabriel to Mary. This formed the first part of the Hail Mary prayer. Hail Mary, full of grace, blessed is the fruit of thy womb. Abbot Baldwin, a Cistercian monk, who was made the Archbishop of Canterbury in 1184, wrote, before this date, a sort of paraphrase of the Ave Maria in which he says, to this salutation of the angel by which we daily greet the most blessed virgin, with such devotion as we may, we are accustomed to add the words, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, by which Mary at a later time, on hearing the virgin's salutation to her, caught up and completed it, as it were the angel's words saying, Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb. Around 1196, there was a synodal decree of Eudes de Soleil, the bishop of Paris, enjoining upon the clergy to see that the salutation of the Blessed Virgin was familiarly known to their flocks, as well as the Creed and the Lord's Prayer. And after this date, similar enactments became frequent in every part of the world, beginning in England with the Synod of Durham in 1217. In 1214, the Dominicans started using the first part of Luke chapter 1 and their praying of the rosary that was revealed to St. Dominic. The addition of the word Jesus was added in 1261 to the end. It was usually written in the 15th century as Jesus Christus, Amen, by the Franciscans. The 1300s, the prayer was extended with O Virgin Benedetta Sempre Tu Ora Per Ne E Dio Che Si Perdone E Diaki Grazia E Viver Si Quage le perdicio el nostra fin si done. That's the Latin. Here's the English. O blessed Virgin, pray to God for us always, that he may pardon us and give us grace, so to live here below that he may reward us with paradise at our death. And this was added by the Jesuits. Versions of the current Hail Mary prayer appear in writings from between 1493 and 1514 with slight variations. The current version was written in the Catechism of the Council of Trent 
and made official when written in the Roman Breviary in 1568. The phrase at the beginning was originally, Our Lord is with thee, and later changed to, The Lord is with thee, around 1900. In Ireland, the general custom is to end the prayer at the word Jesus. So this gives us an idea on where the Hail Mary prayer came from and how it's true that the early Christians were not praying the rosary, but the rosary is a great way to do like a personal Bible study because it calls us to reflect on 20 events in the life of Jesus. So where did the rosary come from? Well, let's get into that. The monks used to memorize and recite all 150 psalms using a chord with 150 knots. And this chord was called a psalter. The peasants tried to imitate this by reciting 150 Our Father prayers in a devotion called the Pater Noster. Hail Mary prayer was substituted to create Our Lady's Psalter, now known as the Rosary. The original Rosary was three sets of 50 prayers, which totals up to 150. And Pope John Paul II gave us the Luminous Mysteries, which allow us to five more events in the life of Jesus. So it's a good thing to have those added to the rosary. So that's how we now have 20 mysteries in the rosary. So the rosary is a Bible study on a chain which allows a person to reflect on 20 events in the life of Christ. It starts with the Apostles' Creed reminding us of the faith of the first Christians. The Apostles' Creed is even older than the Nicene Creed and is said to have been written by all 12 apostles contributing to it. The rosary includes the Lord's Prayer at the beginning of each event reflection, commonly called a mystery. Each mystery is concluded with a prayer that offers glory to the Trinity. The glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit. And the Ten Hail Mary prayers act as a timer, regulating on how long to reflect on the event in life. In Christ's life. The prayer is also a petition to Jesus through his mother for whatever we ask for. This tradition comes from the Jewish practice of offering petitions to the king on the throne of David through his mother, the queen. And we find that tradition starting in the Jew, with the Jews with Solomon and his mother Bathsheba in 1 Kings chapter 2. And in Revelation chapter 12, we find a woman in heaven with a son who rules with a rod of iron, which is Jesus. And uh, we now know that Mary is in heaven with Jesus through that, so that we can petition Jesus through his mother. We also find at the wedding at Cana, when there was a problem there, petition Jesus to help the wedding. And even though they were guests at the wedding and not responsible for the 
festivities, Mary's petition to Jesus had him act to help with the festivities at the wedding where he created a whole lot of wine, uh, like perhaps 180 gallons of the best wine, not just some wine, but the better wine, according to the person responsible for the feast. Briefly go over the mysteries of the rosary and think about, you know, these are the reasons that we pray the rosary and the things that we can reflect on. The five joyful mysteries are the Annunciation, the Visitation, the Nativity, the Presentation, and the Finding in the Temple. The five sorrowful mysteries are Agony in the Garden, Scourging at the Pillar, Crowning with Thorns, Carrying the Cross, and the Crucifixion. Five glorious mysteries are the Resurrection, the Ascension, the Descent of the Holy Spirit's on the Apostles, the Assumption of Mary into Heaven, and the Coronation of Mary as Queen of Heaven. Five mysteries of light are the Baptism of Jesus, the Wedding at Cana, the Proclaiming of the Kingdom, the Transfiguration, and the Eucharist. Now, Catholics are not required to pray the Rosary, but most find it to be a helpful way to pray and reflect on the life of Christ. The rosary prayers can be offered to Jesus for the intention of one person or many people. It is, a, it is prayed as an act of love, so the more intentions, the greater the love. God may answer your prayer with a yes or no or wait for a better plan. Now, perhaps no other devotion in the history of the Catholic Church has been so universally recognized and faithfully practiced as the recitation of the Most Holy Rosary. From the holiest of saints to the lowest, lowliest of sinners, people from all walks of life have, repeated, have reaped its benefits. It is arguably the most beautifully designed of all devotions, for it is a prayer which engages one's whole being in an act of worship and veneration. Properly said, the rosary is not merely a bodily recitation of a fixed formula, but includes a profound contemplation upon the sacred mysteries of our redemption. Acclaimed as one of the most efficacious devotions in the history of the Church, Marian Saint, St. Louis de Montfort, was even moved to assert, if you say the rosary faithfully until death, I do assume that you, in spite of the gravity of your sins, you shall receive a never-ending fading crown of glory. Even if you are on the brink of damnation, even if you have one foot in hell, even if you have sold your soul to the devil, as sorcerers do who practice black mag magic, and even if you are a heretic, as obstinate, obstinate as a devil, sooner or later you will be converted and you will amend your life and save your soul. In view of this lofty praise, let us now examine the various mysteries of this most beautiful prayer as they are found in sacred scripture and particularly as they pertain to the life of individual Christians. So, St. Louis de Montfort um, 
was not saying that the rosary will save you, but the grace given to us by praying the rosary can convert even the most apparently lost people. And that is the purpose of the rosary, not to focus on Mary, but to focus on Jesus. So we'll get into a little bit more depth on the different mysteries of the rosary. Hopefully we can get them all in the first hour, but if not, we'll run over a bit. So the first joyful mystery is the Annunciation, which may aptly be described as the mystery from which all other rosary mysteries proceed. For if the Annunciation had not occurred, then likewise none of the later mysteries would have transpired. Until the angel Gabriel comes to Mary to let her know that she's going to bear God a son, there's no need for the rosary or the New Testament to begin. Located in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 1, verses 26 through 38, the Annunciation is well known as the mystery in which we meditate upon the incarnation of the second person of the Blessed Trinity in the womb of the Virgin Mary, through the operation of the Holy Spirit. It fulfills the prophecy of Isaiah, chapter 7, verse 14, which states that a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. At long last, the prophesied Messiah promised to Israel has entered the world. As we meditate upon this, the announcement of the Archangel Gabriel to Mary, we strive to recall the virtues she exhibited in this moment, as well as the profound implications of her prompt and submissive fiat to the divine will. Luke states that Mary was greatly troubled by the lofty address issued to her by Gabriel, which is itself a manifestation of deep humility. Of overriding importance here, however, is how Mary's selflessness, selfless and unconditional acceptance of God's will for her life should spur us into imitation in our own spiritual lives. We also should strive to accept God's plan for us with an attitude of humility, trust, and peace. The next mystery, the next joyful mystery, is the visitation. Immediately following the Annunciation in Sacred Scripture, the visitation is located in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 1, verses 39 to 56. The mystery in which we meditate upon the visit of Mary with her cousin Elizabeth. The visitation fulfills an Old Testament prophecy in many ways. Mary's Magnificat sounds very familiar to the Song of Hannah in 1 Samuel, verses 1 through 10. As Mary is the new Ark of the Covenant, being that she carries the physical divine presence within her, there's also a great deal of significance to be noted in how she is greeted by Elizabeth, and yet to be born, and the yet to be born John the Baptist. Luke quotes Elizabeth as saying that when the voice of your greeting came to my ears, the child in my womb leaped for joy. This bears a striking similarity to 
how David danced before the Lord in Second Samuel 6, verse 19. Other similarities include how David's reaction to the ark mirrors Elizabeth's reaction to Mary, and how the ark remained in Jerusalem for three months while Mary remained with Elizabeth for three months. Thus, the overriding importance of the visitation lies in how Mary is the New Testament fulfillment of the Ark of the Covenant. As we meditate upon the visitation, we strive to recall the dignity of Mary as the chosen vehicle through whom the Son of God came to redeem mankind. We also reflect upon Mary's generosity in traveling more than 60 miles across the barren desert in order to serve her cousin during her final months of pregnancy. As the mother of God, Mary certainly had the right to quietly prepare for the arrival of her own divine son. But she chose in the charity of, the, of her heart to render service rather than to be served. The Nativity the mystery of the nativity is located in the Gospels of Luke, chapter 2, verses 1 through 21, and Matthew, chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. The nativity of the Lord is one of the richest of all mysteries, which, with regard to the fulfillment of prophecy. Certainly, it is the mystery that is most often remembered and reflected upon, even by the secular culture. It is the mystery in which we meditate upon the miraculous, let humble birth of the Christ child. Most of the world was unaware of this great mystery as it was taking place, except for the three simple shepherds who came to worship Christ at that time, followed by the three magi from the east. Christ was presented with gifts of gold symbolizing royalty frankincense symbolizing worship, and myrrh symbolizing suffering, poverty, and healing. Nativity fulfills the Old Testament prophecy of Micah, chapter 5, verses 1 through 2, which states that a new ruler will be born in Bethlehem, the prophecy of Isaiah 7:14, which states that the Messiah will be born of a virgin, and the prophecy of Malachi 3:1 which states that there will be a forerunner of the Messiah who will prepare his path. In a much broader sense, the nativity brings to fulfillment all the hopes of Israel for the coming Redeemer of mankind. As we meditate upon the nativity, we strive to recall the humility and infinite love of Christ and condescending to assume our human nature and be born in a stable to a poor and obscure household. If our Lord and God is so profoundly humble, loving, and self-sacrificing, then so must we be. We may also meditate upon the correlation between the Most Holy Eucharist and the placing of Christ in a manger, a device used for feeding. On a broader scale, we may strive to be grateful for all the gifts and the blessings that have come to us in the New Testament as a result of Christ's nativity.
the next joyful mystery is the presentation. And this is located in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 2, verses 22 to 36. The presentation of the child Jesus in the temple is the mystery in which we recall the offerings of Christ to his heavenly father in the temple as a kind of foreshadowing of his future sacrifice on the cross. We also recall the purification of Mary in accordance with the prescribed laws of the Old Covenant. The presentation of Christ fulfills the Old Testament obligation in Exodus chapter 13, verse 2, which commands the Israelites to consecrate to me all the firstborn. Whatever is the first to open the womb among the sons of Israel, both of man and of beast, is mine. At the same time, Mary's purification fulfills the prescription of Leviticus. Chapter 2, I'm sorry, chapter 12, verse 8, which calls for two young pigeons or turtle doves to be sacrificed in the purification ceremony when the woman involved is too poor to offer a lamb. As we meditate upon the presentation of Christ, we would do well to remember that Mary's purification was unnecessary, seeing as she is perfectly sinless and she is the mother of God. Regardless of these facts, however, Mary chose to observe the laws of the Old Covenant faithfully as an act of obedience and humility. She did not simply ignore the rules because they did not apply to her, but kept them as a means of showing her love for God. We should also remember that both Jesus and Mary knew in advance all that Jesus was going to suffer at the time of his crucifixion. His entire private life was lived in view of preparing for this great sacrifice. An individual, as individual Christians, we too should be obedient to the spirit of the law. And if the letter of the law does not always apply to us, we too should present ourselves to our Heavenly Father as a sacrifice for his glory in the living of our Catholic faith and in pouring out our lives in service to others. The last joyful mystery is the finding in the temple, and it's located in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 2, verses 41 through 52. The finding of the child Jesus in the temple is the mystery in which we meditate upon the loss of Jesus, the three-day search of Mary and Joseph, and the finding of Christ in the temple as he is instructing the temple elders. In the Old Covenant, the Jerusalem temple was perceived as God's dwelling place on earth. This fact is alluded to in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 4 through 7, wherein David is commanded to build a permanent temple to be God's place of rest. David ultimately chooses Jerusalem as its location. Christ's presence within the temple serves to fulfill this Old Testament perception in the sense that Christ is the new or true temple and also in the sense that God himself has now come to physically reside within his own dwelling place. 
a fulfilling of the messianic expectation in real life. As we meditate upon finding the finding in the temple mystery, we strive to empathize with Joseph and Mary in the pain of their loss, seeing as it is analogous to the loss of Christ's presence experienced in times of spiritual dryness. The finding we may equate to the return of divine consolation at the end of such dry periods. We meditate also on Christ's words to his mother when he says, How is it that you sought me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? With these words, Christ means to remind his mother and his ultimate mission, which is to teach, to suffer, to die, and to rise again. In our own spiritual lives, we must search for Christ where we know he will be. We will find him in prayer, in solitude, in church, and in our sufferings. Our master's house must be our house as well. The first luminous mystery is the baptism of Jesus in the Jordan. We find that the baptism of Jesus in the River Jordan found in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 3, verses 13 through 16, is of an enormous importance in the life of the church. It is the mystery in which we meditate upon our Lord's act of undergoing the baptism of water, administered by his own forerunner, John the Baptist. From the very beginning of time, there is a visible link between the Holy Trinity and the waters. Imagery from the book of Genesis comes to mind, wherein the Spirit of God was moving over the waters. The imagery and use of water in the Old Testament is invariably connected with the sense of renewal or rebirth. The flood of Noah certainly falls into this category as water was the instrument used to renew the earth by cleansing it from a sinful generation. The Catechism of the Catholic Church also identifies the crossing of the Red Sea as a type of baptism. But above all, the crossing of the Red Sea, literally the liberation of Israel from the slavery of Egypt, announces the liberation wrought by baptism. The significance of Christ entering into the waters of the Jordan River is so that he may sanctify them by his presence and preparation for their eventual use in the sacrament of baptism by the Holy Spirit, a sacrament in which the soul is truly cleansed from sin and reborn as a child of God. As we meditate upon the baptism in the Jordan, we are called to reflect upon the day of our own baptism, at which time we also entered into the waters and were reborn by the power of the Holy Spirit into the life of divine grace. At the same time, it is a calling to live our own vocation as sons and daughters of God in view of our adoption into the community, communion of saints. The next luminous mystery is the marriage feast at Cana, and it is located in the Gospel of John, 
chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. The marriage feast of Cana is the mystery in which we meditate upon the first instance which Christ publicly manifests himself, transforming water into wine at the request of his mother, we are left with several profound insights to ponder in our meditation. Both Genesis and Exodus state very clearly that God created the world in six days and rested on the seventh day, which is seen as the dawn of new creation or era. The Gospel of John begins by enumerating a series of events in the life of Jesus which occur over a span of time of four days. By the time we reach the wedding of Cana, another three days have already passed since the last narrative given. This is an intentional device used by John to demonstrate that the marriage feast of Cana is occurring on the seventh day. This point becomes even clearer in light of John's gospel beginning with a creation narrative similar to that of Genesis. To draw the parallel between Genesis and the marriage feast even further, Jesus here refers to his mother as woman, while the entire conversation between them takes place in the background of a marriage, which is itself a link back to Genesis. The implication of all this is that Jesus is the new Adam and Mary is the new Eve. Jesus first publicly manifests himself on the seventh day, indicating that a new creation or a new era has begun. As we meditate upon the marriage feast of Cana, we recall that Christ also raised the state of marriage to the dignity of a sacrament. We also recall the intercessory power of our Blessed Mother with Christ, as it is only upon the request of the woman that he has moved, he was moved to perform his first public miracle. We recognize also that Mary's statement to the servant is equally a statement to each one of us when she says, do whatever he tells you. We must strive to be submissive to God's will and to actively participate in bringing about its fulfillment. The third luminous mystery is the proclamation of the kingdom. And this is located in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 1, verses 14 through 15. The entire New Testament passage containing this mystery may here be conveniently provided. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, preaching the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. At hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. For many centuries, the Israelites had been waiting for the coming of the promised Messiah and would usher in God's reign or kingdom on earth. Well, this was always meant in a spiritual sense, over time, and especially under the occupation of the Romans, the Jews began to view the coming of the kingdom of God in a much more physical, militaristic way. Thus, while Christ's proclamation fulfills the entire Old Testament expectation, expectation of the coming of God's kingdom, it was unfortunately misinterpreted by many within the Jewish community at that time. 
ultimately Jesus would be rejected by the community as it had grown too accustomed to thinking of its messianic deliverance in terms of material prosperity and conquest. What the Israelites failed to understand about the proclamation of God's of the kingdom of God is that Christ meant is that Christ meant it was to be understood in a spiritual sense, both in the life of the individual and in the much broader scale. The individual Christian is called to accept the kingdom of God into his heart and thereby to live according to its standards of holiness and charity. Doing so will give him a foretaste of the life of the church, triumphant in heaven, is the kingdom of God in the broader sense. All Christians must strive to become faithful citizens to this kingdom, and all must repent of their sins in order to enter it. Um, now back here in Mark chapter 1, where it says the time of fulfillment and the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe in the gospel. Now, we Catholics you know, understand the gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, but the gospel is also the good news. And the good news is that Jesus is the Messiah, and has come to bring the kingdom of God to us here on earth. But again, as the Jews were misunderstanding at the time of Jesus, it was not going to be a physical kingdom here on earth, but a spiritual kingdom through Jesus. And when Jesus is questioned by Pilate, Jesus explains to him that his kingdom is not of this world. His kingdom is heaven in heaven, but at Jesus' second coming, he will set up his new kingdom here on earth. The next mystery of light is the transfiguration, and it is located in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 17, verses 1 through 8. The transfiguration is a mystery in which we meditate upon the manifestations of Christ's divinity to the apostles. Peter, James, and John atop a high mountain. At once becoming totally suffused with dazzling light, Christ thereby shared a magnificent grace with his apostles in allowing them to witness a faint reflection of his true glory. The Old Testament imagery here is a, as ample as it is compelling of Exodus, we read how Moses' face was a shown with a dazzling light on Mount Sinai as he received the stone tablets on which the Ten Commandments were inscribed. As Jesus is now transfigured with a dazzling light atop a mountain, the correlation between Moses as the type of Christ as a fulfillment becomes obvious, even more so in light of the the fact that Moses himself, along with Elijah, a type of John the Baptist, also appear on the mountaintop with Christ in this moment. As we meditate upon the mystery of the transfiguration, we are reminded of how the humility of Christ, 
willingly assumed acted as a veil to conceal his glorious divinity. In our if our omnipotent Lord and God has freely chosen to conceal his true glory while on earth, then we should be, so should we, his disciples. Rather, go about in search of praise of our virtues and good deeds. We must conceal them in humility so that we may one day be rewarded and glorified in the kingdom of God. We would also do well to remember not to judge by outward appearances alone, but should look rather inward to the heart and soul, to a person's true nature, as it were. The last luminous mystery is the institution of, Euchar of the Eucharist. And that is located in the Gospel of Matthew, chapters 26, verses 26 to 29, and Mark's Gospel, chapter 14, verses 22 through 25, and in Luke's Gospel, chapter 22, verses 14 through 23. The institution of the Most Holy Eucharist is one of the deepest and most profound mysteries of all. For it is the mystery by which we meditate upon the sacrament by which our Lord communicates himself to us most intimately. At the Last Supper in the upper room, Christ gave his twelve apostles his very own body, blood, soul, and divinity to partake of while granting them the power and authority to do so in his name and memory for all future generations. The ways in which the Old Testament prefigures the Holy Eucharist are so many and intricate that it would be impractical to enumerate them all. For the sake of convenience, I'll here enunciate three of the most obvious and profound ways. We learn from Exodus 15 verses 14 through 35 that God fed his chosen people in the desert for 40 years with bread from heaven, commonly referred to as manna. As Jesus refers to himself as the living bread which came down from heaven in John chapter 6, it is clear that the manna of the Old Testament prefigures the flesh of Christ in the New Testament, which he gives to his apostles at the Last Supper. We also learn from Exodus 25 and 26 that the Old Testament bread of the presence was kept inside the Ark of the Covenant indicating that it was regarded as the highest, with the highest reverence, since anyone who touched the ark directly would die. If the new covenant, the bread of life, was kept in the womb of Mary, the new ark of the covenant, New Testament fulfillments are always greater than their Old Testament prefigurements. It follows logically that the bread of life which is the Eucharist, must truly be the real, substantial presence of Christ. For only in this manner could the sacredness of the Eucharist outweigh its Old Testament prefigurement. <laughs> Lastly, there is often overlooked 
a dimension to the sacrifice of the Paschal Lamb in the Old Testament, as it prefigures the sacrifice of Christ on Calvary. It, was, it is that God commanded the flesh of the Lamb to be consumed by the chosen people. Sprinkling the Lamb's blood on their doorposts was not enough. The people actually had to partake of the sacrifice in order to attain the protection from the angel of death. If Jesus is the fulfillment of the Paschal Lamb in the sense of his sacrifice, then he must also be the fulfillment in terms of partaking of his sacrifice. The only way in which this can be accomplished is through the consumption of his body and blood in the Eucharist, indicating that the reception of Holy Communion is not only is not optional, but actually essential for salvation as Christ himself has asserted many times in John chapter 6. The implications of this institution of the Eucharist for the individual Christian are endless. Having already stated that the necessity of receiving Holy Communion for our salvation, we must also treat this most sublime mystery with the utmost reverence and holy fear and that it is truly the living presence of God on earth. We should avail ourselves to this wondrous privilege we have in the New Testament to be physically present with God, with the Son of God at Mass, in adoration, and in our reception of him into our body and soul. The Catechism states that the Eucharist is the source and summit of the Church's life. So, two should be the source and summit of each individual Christian's life. The first uh, sorrowful mystery is the agony in the garden, and it is located in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 26, 36 through 56. Luke, um, I'm sorry, Mark, chapter 16, 14, verses 32 through 42 in Luke chapter 22, verses 39 through 46. The agony of our Lord in the Garden of Gethsemane is the mystery in which we meditate upon the physical and emotional pain of Christ endured as he began to bear the full crushing weight of our sins in his spirit. Jesus' reference to this chalice from which he must drink hearkens us back to the Old Testament understanding of a cup or chalice being connected with God's wrath. The book of Isaiah provides us with an example of this type of imagery. Rouse yourself, rouse yourself, stand up, O Jerusalem, you, have, you who have drunk at the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath, who have drunk to the dregs of the bowl of staggering. Another example can be found in Jeremiah chapter 25, verses 15 through 20, which speaks of the cup of the Lord's hand from which the nations are to drink and thereby be cursed by God. A further example is provided in the Psalms, number 75, verses 6 through 10. As Jesus must now drink from the cup of the Lord, it is a reference to the fact that he must now bear the punishment for our sins. Not only must he drink from the chalice of God's wrath, 
but he must drink it to the dregs. That is like the very bottom of the cup. Every last drop must be consumed for the justice of God to be satisfied. As we meditate upon the mystery of the agony in the garden, we strive to recall the sheer grief of our own personal sins have caused him at this moment, as well as his willingness to suffer for even his enemies. There are times in our own lives when we suffer in the garden of our hearts over some evil or injustice done to us or our loved ones. It is in moments like these that we must unite our sufferings to those of Christ, who, though innocent, was willing to suffer all that his Father's will permitted and that he must in order to bring about the greater good of our redemption. We also must be willing to drink from the cup of suffering for the greater good of our own lives. The next sorrowful mystery is the scourging at the pillar, and it is located in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 27, verse 26, Mark's Gospel, chapter 15, verse 15, in Luke's Gospel, chapter 22, verses 23 through 25, in John's Gospel, chapter 19, verse 1. The scourging of the pillar of Christ at the pillar is the mystery in which we meditate upon the cruel flagellation of our Lord at the hands of his Roman captors after having been arrested by the temple authorities. The scourging of Jesus fulfills Isaiah's prophecy of the suffering servant, particularly with regards to verse 5, for it was for he was wounded for our transgressions, he was bruised for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that made us whole, and with his stripes we are healed. It has long been understood that Jesus allowed himself to undergo the scourging in order to make atonement for our sins of the flesh. In view of this fact, we should strive to develop the virtue of chastity and frequently perform some act of mortification so as to gain mastery over our lower bodily inclinations. The scourging of Christ shows us how truly abhorrent sexual sins are in the eyes of God and that reparation must be made for them. The next sorrowful mystery is the crowning with thorns, and that is located in the Gospel of Matthew, Chapter 27, verses 27 through 31. Mark, chapter 15, verses 15 through 20. And Luke's Gospel, chapter 22, verses 63 through 65. And in John's Gospel, chapter 19, verses 1 through 3. The crowning with thorns is the mystery in which we meditate upon the physical beating of Christ and mocking of his divine kingship by his Roman torturers. There is reference to the mockery of Christ during his passion in the book of Psalms when it says, all who seek me, see me mock me. They have make their mouths at me. They wag their heads. He committed his cause to the Lord. 
let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Certainly, the passage of the suffering servant from Isaiah also prefigures the crowning of thorns, particularly with regard to verse 3, that he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. As we meditate upon the crowning of thorns, we recall the rejection of Christ's divinity and blasphemy against his kingship. We are called to examine whether we ourselves have treated Christ in this manner in professing him to be our king while simultaneously offending with our sins. We must profess Christ as our king, not merely with our lips, but with our hearts and actions. The next sorrowful mystery is the carrying of the cross, and that is located in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 27, verse 20, 32, Mark's Gospel, chapter 15, verses 21 through 23, Luke's Gospel, chapter 23, verses 26 through 31, and in John's Gospel, chapter 19, verse 17. The carrying of the cross is the mystery in which we meditate upon the passion of our Lord as he struggled underneath the weight of the cross, which represents our sins. In this mystery, we have yet another prefigurement in Isaiah 53, this time with specific reference to verse 7. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before it its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. The fact that a lamb is described in this passage also reminds us of the Passover in Exodus, where the Paschal Lamb, as fulfilled by Christ, delivers God's people from death. In a broader sense, the entire passage of Isaiah chapter 53 and verses 4 through 5 particularly, also prefigure the mystery of the carrying of the cross. As we meditate upon this mystery, we quickly discover that there are many angles from which it can be examined. From the agony Christ endured under the weight of our sins, to the symbolism of his three falls, to the assistance of Simon of Cyrene. There are many lessons to be gleaned from even a brief meditation upon the passion of our Lord. As individual Christians, therefore, it would behoove us to meditate often and deeply upon the way of the cross, devotion. If one overarching concept should be enumerated here, it would certainly be the necessity of carrying our own crosses in the footsteps of Jesus Christ. For he himself said that anyone who would be his disciple must take up his cross and follow him, be willing to bear the weight of our sufferings, and persevere in following Christ no matter how many times we fall and the way we must trust that God will bring a greater good out of the evil which befalls us. As Christ was willingly 
was willing to suffer, we must also be willing to suffer. The last sorrowful mystery is the crucifixion, and it is located in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 27, verses 32 through 56, in Mark's Gospel, chapter 15, verses 21 through 39, Luke's Gospel, chapter 23, verses 26 through 49, and in John's Gospel, chapter 19, verses 17 through 37. The crucifixion and death of our Lord is at the center of all other all other rosary mysteries. Earlier mysteries anticipate it, while later mysteries are dependent upon it. It is the mystery in which we meditate upon the affixing of Christ to the cross, and the three hours during which he hung in agony upon it before experiencing death in his human nature. Once again, we make reference here to the passages of Isaiah chapter 53, this time with particular regard to verses 10 through 12. Yes, it was the will of the Lord to bruise him. He, was put, he has put him to grief. When he makes himself an offering for sin, he shall see his offering. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand, and he shall see the fruit of the travail of his soul, and be satisfied by his knowledge shall all the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their inequities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil among the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. The book of Psalms also reveals how Christ's crucifixion fulfills Old Testament prophecy in a narrow sense as well as a broad one when it says, I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them and for my clothing they cast lots. Jesus fulfills two aspects of the prophecy here, in that the Roman soldier cast lot for his clothing, and he was so badly beaten and scourged that his ribs could be seen and counted. Still another way in which the crucifixion fulfills Old Testament prophecy can be found in Psalms 34 and verse 20, which reads, He keeps all his bones, not one of them is broken. None of Jesus' bones were broken in spite of the cruel torment he was subjected to. The way in which our Lord's crucifixion fulfills prophecy are virtually endless. As we meditate upon the crucifixion and death of our Lord, we are called to remember at what infinite price our redemption was bought for us. No greater act of love could there be than for the eternal God to lower himself to the point of assuming human nature for the express purpose of suffering and dying as one of us 
in the cruelest, most excruciating way possible. We are called to remember that every gift of grace we have received in the New Covenant is a result of this single greatest act of love. In light of this reality, we must therefore strive to imitate our Lord's selfless love according to our own ability and circumstances. In imitating his love, we shall also spread it, thereby becoming more like Christ ourselves. Now for the Glorious Mysteries. The first Glorious Mystery is the Resurrection. In examining the final five mysteries of the Rosary, we shall see that the resurrection of the Lord is perhaps the most glorious of all the mysteries. For in it we meditate upon how Christ rose from the dead by his own divine power, thus conquering sin and death. Indeed, the resurrection brings to completion of redemption upon the cross, thereby opening the gates of heaven for all future generations that would choose to follow Christ. There are a few allusions in the book of Isaiah to a prefigured resurrection of Christ, as it says in Isaiah chapter 25. He will swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all face and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth. For the Lord has spoken. There's also an allusion in, to the resurrection in the book of Job, which says, For I know that my Redeemer lives, and at last he will stand upon the earth. Even Isaiah chapter 53, verse 10, contains an allusion to the resurrection in saying, When he makes himself an offering for sin, he shall prolong his days. A further evidence for the resurrection can be found in our Lord's admonition to the Pharisees concerning the sign of Jonah. As Jonah was in the belly of the whale for three days before returning, so too the Son of Man would remain for three days in the heart of the earth before returning. The resurrection of Christ thus fulfills the Old Testament prophecy of a Redeemer who would rise from the dead. As we meditate upon the resurrection of the Lord, we strive to recall all the magnificent gifts that, which proceed from Christ's victory over death and sin. Specifically, we think of how we ourselves are empowered by his victory to overcome sin in our own lives and of how God's grace will ultimately triumph over every evil, no matter how powerful it may be. We look forward with hope to the day when our own risen bodies will be transformed in the image of Christ's body, possessing glory, impassibility, agility, and subtility. We strive to pattern our lives on earth after that of Christ, so that one day our eternal life patterned after his own divine life in heaven. The second joyful, glorious mystery is the Ascension, and it is located in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 24, verse 36 through 63. 
and in the book of Acts, chapter 1, verses 6 through 11. The ascension of our Lord into heaven is a mystery in which we meditate upon Christ's return to his heavenly Father in glory after spending 40 days with his apostles after the resurrection. No longer poor and obscure, Christ in this moment manifests his divinity to the apostles as he had already done several times since his resurrection, thereby alluding to the fact that the virtues of poverty, humility, and obedience, among all other virtues, will be rewarded and glorified in eternity. The ascension is prophesied in the book of Psalms where it says, the Lord says of the Lord, you ascended high, the high mountain, leading captives in your train. St. Paul connects this passage with the ascension when he speaks to the Ephesians in chapter 4, verses 8 through 9. The reference to the captives seems to be an allusion to the liberation of the just souls from limbo at the time of Christ's ascension. The concept of ascension is an exclusively divine act is established in various Old Testament passages like Deuteronomy chapter 30 verses 11 through 14, Proverbs chapter 30 verse 4, and especially in 2 Kings chapter 2 verses 11 and 12 wherein the prophet Elijah is taken up into heaven in the whirlwind. For Jesus to ascend into heaven by his own power in the presence of his apostles, therefore serves as proof of his divinity. As we meditate upon the ascension of the Lord, we strive to recall the words of the angel who appeared to the apostles after Christ had left their sight. Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. As individual Christians, we should heed these words of angels and admonish the apostles not to stand idly by, missing the presence of their Lord, but rather go forth and accomplish the mission he had entrusted to them. We are to look forward and hope to the day when we ourselves shall enter into that glorious kingdom where Christ now reigns. But in the meantime, we are to live his teachings, spread his truth, and continue the work of salvation that he made possible for us. The next glorious mystery is the descent of the Holy Spirit on the apostles at Pentecost, and that is located in the book of Acts, chapter 2, verses 1 through 42. The descent of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost is the myst that mystery in which we meditate upon the spiritual transformation of the apostles at the time of their reception of the Holy Spirit on the Feast of Pentecost. Having hidden themselves in the pentacle for ten days, because of their fear of the persecution by the Jews, the apostles were in dire need of divine strengthening to prepare them for their apostolic mission. While there is no direct Old Testament prophecy of the actual descent of the Holy Spirit, which occurs in this mystery, there are many descriptions of the Spirit of God as being 
like wind and fire. Examples of this are found in Exodus chapter 13, verses 21 through 22, wherein God leads his chosen people out of Egypt by means of a pillar of fire. And in Isaiah chapter 11, verse 15, wherein God threatens to destroy the sea of Egypt with his scorching wind. And in Exodus chapter 2, verses 3 through 6, wherein God manifests himself to Moses in the form of a burning bush. The coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost as a mighty wind and tongues of fire therefore establishes that the spirit given in this fact is in fact the spirit of God. As we meditate upon this mystery of the coming of the Holy Spirit, we are compelled to reflect upon the miraculous transformation that the apostles underwent as a result of this unprecedented infusion of divine grace into their souls. No longer were these men timid and dull and unfit for the task of evangelization. Now they were filled with the gifts and fruits of the Holy Spirit to the, an extent that they were, in some sense, new men altogether. We are, we are called as individual Christians, therefore, to remember that the Holy Spirit also came to us at the time of our confirmation, and that we too must strive to develop and exercise the gifts of the Spirit in our own daily lives and circumstances. We would also do well to remember that this moment of the descent of the Holy Spirit marks the beginning of the Church's 2,000-year-old mission to convert sinners and save souls in the name of Christ. How grateful the mystery How grateful we should be to have this mission according to the circumstances of our state and life. The next glorious mystery is the assumption of the Blessed Virgin Mary into heaven. Although this is not found in any gospel or direct spiritual path scriptural passage, the mystery of the Assumption of the Blessed Virgin Mary into Heaven by the power of her designed Son is a rather unique mystery in this sense. It is a mystery in which we meditate upon the loving justice of God, which refused to allow Mary's perfect body to undergo corruption by assuming her body and soul into heaven at the time of her, at the end of her earthly life. We can infer from the Old Testament events that God would logically decide to assume his mother's body into heaven. For instance, we know from our study of the Old Testament that the Ark of the Covenant was so holy and precious in the eyes of God that anyone who touched it directly would die. God took extreme jealous care of the Ark until eventually hidden away in a cave in preparation for the day when the true Ark would take its place. Since we know that Mary is the true Ark of the New Covenant, then we know how more precious must she be in the eyes of God. In connection with this, we have a passage from Psalm 16, verse 10, which is a prophecy pertaining to the Messiah. For you do not give me up to Sheol, or let your faithful undergo corruption. 
If God will not permit the body of his only begotten son to undergo corruption and decay, It may logically be inferred that the woman he has chosen for his mother's, his son's mother should also be preserved from corruption and decay by virtue of her intimate connection with Jesus. Additionally, as Christ is the new Adam who conquers his death and who conquers death and is therefore not subject to it, so too Mary is the new Eve who shares in Christ's victory over death and who should therefore be exempt from it. Aside from these and similar scriptural references, we have unanimous testimony of sacred tradition as handed down to us from the church fathers that Mary's body was truly and literally assumed into heaven at the end of her life. As we meditate upon the bodily assumption of Mary into heaven, we should strive to develop a deeper appreciation for the magnificent gifts bestowed upon her by Christ. Recognizing the power of our Lord to make person as holy and perfect as Mary, we should be inspired to become holy ourselves by imitating Our Lady's virtues. We should also cultivate a longing for and hope in the joys of heaven as we await when we too shall be taken into paradise in our glorified bodies at the end of time. The last glorious mystery is the coronation of the Blessed Virgin Mary as Queen of Heaven and Earth. And this is the mystery in which we meditate upon Mary's physical and spiritual crowning in Heaven as a reward for her unprecedented sanctity and importance in salvation history. It is the mystery wherein Our Lady is endowed with a glory, a power, and an authority that is second only to God Himself. The church is commanded to venerate her, the angels are moved to bow before her, and even the demons of hell are made to tremble at the sound of her name. As with the assumption, there is no direct scriptural passage which record the coronation of Mary. Like the assumption, however, there are several strong references to Mary's queenship that can be brought forward. Certainly, there is the Davidic kingdom under the reign of Solomon, a unique feature of Solomon's kingdom, as with other kingdoms of the time, is that he made his mother the queen rather than his wife. This was due to the fact that Solomon had over 700 wives and was therefore incapable of selecting one as queen to the detriment of the others. As Solomon in spite of his human failings, is universally understood as a biblical type of Christ, the king follows logically that his mother, Bathsheba, is a type of Queen Mother Mary. This concept becomes all the more cogent in light of Bathsheba's role as intercessor with Solomon, as demonstrated in Second Kings chapter 2, verses 19 through 25, as Bathsheba intercedes with Solomon and rules underneath him, so too Mary intercedes with Christ and rules underneath him. Another scriptural reference 
for the queenship of Mary can be found in the book of Revelation, chapter 12, verses 1 through 6. Wherein the woman who gives birth to the Messiah is depicted as wearing a crown of 12 stars. Who else would wear a crown if not a queen? As Mary is the mother of the Messiah, it follows logically that she is also the queen of heaven. As we meditate upon the coronation of our lady in heaven, we would do well to recall the sheer force of her intercessory power with God to the extent that he will refuse, refuse her nothing. Let us cultivate a profound devotion to this most blessed Virgin Mary, that we may have a gracious and unfailing advocate with Christ, our King, in our, our hour of judgment. Let us also look forward to that blessed day when we ourselves shall enter into that heavenly kingdom of Christ, our Lord, where we too shall receive glorious and unfading crowns of life as princes and princesses under Mary, our Queen, and Christ, our King. Let us strive to imitate the virtues of Jesus and Mary in our own lives, that we may one day partake of the glory in which they now reign. In conclusion, having examined the various mysteries of the Most Holy Rosary, as they are found in sacred scripture, and as they relate to the life of the Christian, we may see just how beautifully biblically, biblical the rosary actually is. Let it never be said that those who are ignorant of scripture, that the rosary is somehow unbiblical or merely an invention of medieval clerics. As both our Father, as both the Our Father and the Hail Mary are taken directly from the Gospels, it may be said that the Rosary is a Bible for those who cannot read. Virtually every syllable of the prayer uttered and every flash of meditation made upon these most precious beads has its origin somewhere in the passages of sacred scripture. The implication that we are left with, therefore, is inescapable. If the rosary is a biblical prayer, then the Bible is a Catholic book. So that's why I teach people that the, Bible, the rosary is like a Bible study on a chain of beads. We don't need to be afraid to pray it. And we can explain to others that the Ten Hail Marys act as a timer mechanism. It's not all about Mary. It's all about Jesus. So thanks for tuning in today. If you'd like a copy of today's show notes or have a follow-up question, send me an email at catholickenpersons.com or look me up on Facebook. If you would like to have me come speak at your parish on this or many other topics, send me an email at Ken Litchfield 61 at gmail.com or look me up on Facebook. May God bless and guide your efforts to bring the truth of the Catholic faith to the world. Thanks for tuning in. Bye.